I just want to welcome our listeners, All Things Mental Health with Mike and Joy, and we are united today with Live United, Tulsa United Ways podcast, and Joy is not available today, but Matt Gleason with the Tulsa United Way is going to sit in, and you are the creative director for our podcast, but also you're the creative director and host of the Live United podcast. So, Matt, I'm so glad you could be with us today. It's it's such an honor to, to be here with you, Mike. And today's guest, Adam Andreessen. Welcome to the Tulsa community, to the state of Oklahoma, and we are thrilled you are here I keep hearing great things about your work, your philosophy, your approach to this important work that we do in mental health and substance abuse care and treatment, and we're going to give you a chance today to kind of talk some about that. But why don't we start out, if you don't mind, just take some time, introduce yourself about your background, where you grew up, your education, just take some time, and we would love to sort of let our listeners know more about you. Sure. Well, thank you all both for uh, being here, and I love that this is a, a dual podcast. Of course, we work so closely going back uh, 100 years, 99 years, I guess, with Tulsa Area United Way. So welcome and thank you, and thank you for the welcome to the community. So I'm a psychologist by background, grew up in the Missouri area, central Missouri, and then Around 1990, this will date me a little bit, but around 1990, moved to Arlington, Texas, and did high school and college there. My family moved there. And so I lived in Dallas-Fort Worth, still have some family in Dallas-Fort Worth. But my wife is from Southwest Missouri. And so soon after we got married in 2002, early 2003, we moved back to Springfield and I went back to school, got my doctorate in psychology there, started a family there. We have three amazing teenage children. Fun, fun fact, the older they get, the dumber I get. I think that's how it goes and that's what they've been telling me. So glad to have all of that in, in progress and now making my way here to Tulsa. I've been in community mental health the last six or seven years in operations, there's a lot of similarities in the way Missouri and Oklahoma have transitioned and evolved. And that's how I got to know family and children's is at some shared conferences, got to know some of the team members there. Of course, Gail, who just retired as CEO, met her in 2020 and just really started appreciating a lot about family and children's. And around the same time, started appreciating Tulsa. Tulsa is the best kept secret of all the cities in the United States right now, I think it's the one that's just poised to to really be garnering a lot more attention. And that's probably a, a mixed bag because there's probably plenty of Tulsans who would just assume that we stay under the radar, but it's, it's hard to keep a city like this a secret for long. We agree about that. We think that, of course, when we expanded, when I was with Mental Health Association, we expanded over into the Oklahoma City area. I really came to really appreciate the Oklahoma City community in our rural areas also, but Tulsa is always really special and you're getting to discover that. I want to know a little bit more about your experiences there in community mental health in Missouri and also any contrast or differences. You mentioned the similarities, but I'm sure there are probably some differences and a little bit. You know, I know you worked in operations. You mentioned I would COO maybe or... Yeah, I was COO of a similar size system to family and children's, maybe a little bit bigger in Missouri, and then it started growing. So about six or seven years ago, a Republican and Democrat senator, uh, I, I, I thought it was against the law for Republicans and Democrats to work together. It's, it's against the law now, except that um, Senator Stabenow and Senator Blunt uh, at the federal level came together, um, both of them caring deeply about mental health. And one of the things I think we're all grateful for is that mental health has mostly 
been able to skate outside of the partisanship because no matter which side of the aisle you're coming from, you see the value and you see the ways in which it is good human policy, good civic policy, and good economic policy to invest in mental health because of all the prevention that happens and all the millions of dollars that get saved and all the lives that get saved if you invest in mental health. And so there's been this long time awareness that community mental health, as it was envisioned, was good but needed some upgrades. So again, a bit of a history uh, lesson in 1963, JFK trying to shut down insane asylums signs the Community Mental Health uh, Act and puts all that money into community services so that you can live lives of dignity with those you love, um, even if you have a chronic or severe mental illness. So that's 1963, and then uh, that's the last bill he signs before his death. And we've had about 40-plus years of this great run, but there was this growing awareness that, air quote, traditional community mental health was starting to emphasize too much of just volume and cheap services and state after state was underfunding and it was just needing some upgrades. So Center Blunt, Center Stabenow, they come together and they work with SAMHSA, the federal agency that oversees this, and they push the, the I, I always get the name wrong, but it's something like the, uh, the Community Mental Health Excellence Act. And that opens up the door to become what's called CCBHC, a Certified Community Behavioral Health Center. No one understands this, even those of us that run it some days, it's kind of confusing. But here's the bottom line. It repackages the funding of mental health to really focus on, yes, a lot of volume of services, but on adequately reimbursing so that instead of saying, well, we're going to hire you know, some less qualified people to do a lot of those services and then maybe not hire the expensive physicians and psychologists and therapists, what it does is it really equals, equals it out so that you get people qualified at every level and you can actually compete with the rest of the world on your salaries and on your services. Now, what that does for a state like Missouri and what that does for a state like Oklahoma is it allows you to scale up your services quickly. So about seven years ago, Missouri and Oklahoma were two of the eight demonstration sites to show this new program in action. And Missouri and Oklahoma, in my opinion, have been the two most successful states, with apologies to the other six, at demonstrating what you can do to scale up not just the volume of services, but the outcome of services. And so I was in Missouri. We were rocking and rolling for the last seven years. It was like rocket fuel where you just try to keep up with yourself and you're growing because that's the point of CCBHC is to grow. And then Oklahoma is going through a very similar transformation and the last few years, Oklahoma has gone ahead and converted all of its community mental health centers to CCBHCs, and that's because of how successful it's been. And you know that is really great background because I, I you did a great job of explaining that to our listeners, kind of because I think they hear that term and we say it, but we don't. We sort of skip over it. Well, what does that really mean? People ask me that and what have you, and you did a great job of sort of explaining that to our listeners about what that means. And I love it that you're talking about, you know, I want to do honor, you know, my friend Gail Lapidus has been, I've known Gail for over at least 30 years and we've been friends and colleagues for a long time and always want to do honor. And Gail, if you're out there listening, I want to have you, we, I want to have you on the podcast and we want to take time to give you a chance down the road to talk about your legacy and all the things that you've brought to mental health care services in Tulsa in this state 
an incredible impact. And I appreciate you acknowledging her contribution and what she's done. But, you know, you, you know, that idea of upscaling and we have forever said, and I'm mental, I consider myself an, an, an advocate, we've never had enough services. We've had quality of services. Gail and Family and Children's has always been a leader in high-quality services in this community, but our scale, we've not been able to scale up, and lots of people over and over go without. And so as we scaled up, how, what's your, your vision in terms of outreach and reaching people who need services, but because of stigma, because of fear, because of lack of understanding, they maybe are reluctant to participate and seek services. How, what, how do you approach that in terms of your leadership of this incredible organization now? First of all, you know, what Gail did here, 50 years, 40 of them-ish as CEO, it's it's truly incredible and in, in so many ways, I would say unprecedented. And so really appreciate and shout out Gail. So here's the thing. The challenge with community mental health is not just do you provide services, but do people know what you do and why you're there? And does the public understand it? And does your legislature understand it? Because to your point, there's been a lack of funding for decades. And so when all of a sudden all of this funding floods in, we, we learn a few things really fast. Number one, our lawmakers are all like, hey, what's going on with all this spending? And it is a really hard thing to explain. Well, we're trying to slingshot and catch up from 50 years of not getting funding. And we have to ramp up this fast and we have to invest. This is what growth markets do. And in this case, the growth market is trying to patch and build a bigger safety net so that people don't slip through. So we're at this inflection point in Oklahoma and nationwide where everybody's starting to realize it's not if you pay for these things, it's how you pay for them. You either pay for them with prevention or in six and 10 and 12 years, you pay for them with all the fallout of letting a mental health issue or a substance use issue just run free for a decade or more. And so what happens is there's all this research, the ACEs studying all this stuff that shows that the impact of not intervening causes, is probably the single biggest impact on lost time at work and all these economic things. And so I think that's one of the things that's made it easier to unite around is it's not if you invest in mental health, it's how, either as the cleanup afterwards or as the prevention and building people's into their best lives now. And so what's happened is in a lot of ways, you have all of this need and you have all of this funding and then COVID hits. And when COVID hits, all of a sudden, everybody has a good reason to undeniably be a little anxious and worried. And that anxiety and that worry shows up in a lot of different ways, but you know what happens? The number of people who are willing to receive care skyrockets because forget stigma everyone's nervous now and if everyone's nervous it's no big deal to need some care and so what that did is it i think sort of put one of the final turning points in on stigma now that's not to say that individual humans don't feel stigma but as a global thing that dis dissuades people from care we've really turned a corner on stigma but you know what else happened this happened in missouri and it happened here door demand went up 30% because everybody needs care. And door demand, by the way, might be screen demand because you might be at your home needing care. So when that goes up, 
Now what happens is you have all these systems who, remember, have been underfunded for 40 years. We don't have enough staff. There's not enough staff in the, in the private market because there's not even enough people going to school for the need right now. The average age of a psychologist is 55. And that goes down with all these other professions too. You just don't have enough people in the workforce. So what it starts to shine a light on is that, yes, we're finally putting the funding that's necessary into these safety nets, but that's only part of the thing. The other part of it is, how do we have partnerships with schools? And how do we get enough buildings and technology to meet that need? And how do we organize with the best technologies so that we are like a good highway system, getting people into the right level of care instead of getting them lost and stuck in traffic? So all of this is what is happening nationwide in Oklahoma right now. The, don't get me wrong. The funding coming in right now is absolutely vital to build that safety net, but it is only one piece of that puzzle. And that demand, it is growing, but it is growing and putting us all on notice as a society that that point in time at which you have your crisis, if we don't have the infrastructure in place when you have your crisis, that might be the only window of time that you would receive care or need care. And so there is literally life and death stakes in scaling up like this. And that's why we are adamant at Family and Children's and so many others are adamant that we are not done until every barrier to care is removed. And that barrier might be transportation. It might be not enough staff. It might be not enough buildings. Or it might be that we did not spend enough on marketing so that you knew about us before you were in crisis. Oh, I love that. I mean, just your global macro sort of vision of that whole process, that whole delivery system. And I, and I, you know, just to shout out, I, I teach undergraduate social work students out at Oral Roberts University right now. And, you know, and, you know, we need more students. We need more, we have to have workforce and we need to build, build that workforce, that infrastructure so we can actually provide that service. And you've got a great view of that. And by the way, you guys have always done fantastic providing students practicum opportunities, training, and it's always a good, I, I, I always found it a really good recruitment tool to be able to do that. And, and you guys have always had a long history of great training for students and building that infrastructure. And I, I just love that in, in terms of that, in that vision. What about, you know, the, the collaboration? We've got, you know, multiple community mental health center systems right here in the, I'll say the Tulsa metro area, although it, that goes out quite a ways what have you, and what, what, what's your philosophy, your ideas about collaborating? I hear this talk about, oh, we're competing. You know, I always say, well, I think competition is good, and let people, where can you go to get the best services? That's how the free market works. But collaboration and, and, and finding ways to work together uh, is really important from my perspective. But Share a little bit about your philosophy about that, Adam. I appreciate it. So appreciate the question. You know, there, I would say collaboration and coordination are both vital. And when you talk about uh, having a mission for providing access and ensuring access, e even before CCBHC, the first word in our name is community, community mental health center. And of course, family and children starts m more than 100 years ago, and its core has always been collaborations, partnerships, building in those inroads, and making sure that nobody is left behind. Community Mental Health Center, we become a community mental health center about 25 years ago, and then a CCBHC, which is a kind of community mental health center about five years ago. And the biggest thing that shifted is in the past, 
we were always collaborating, but the collaboration was you give the funding and we bring the providers or the expertise. Now, what's changed is we still need funding. And there are still things where like we value so much the interaction with the foundations and the philanthropic. And those things are still needed. But what we need them for has shifted because of the CCBHC funding. What we need them for is all those other pieces that really build around the people that you're hiring and providing services with. But what CCBHC does is allows, I've used the analogy of, I can come to every potluck now with a true entree, and that is, if there is a need, we can hire up and we can meet that need. But to your point, there's others doing that too. Well, we have, we serve about 55,000 people ourselves, and that number is growing, and I expect it to continue to grow, and we're going to grow as fast as we can. But when you look at the number of people that need services in any community, not just Tulsa, not just our rural areas, and when you also look at the fact that a community like Tulsa and Oklahoma City, these communities serve the outlying uh, counties in so many ways because they don't always have that full access and infrastructure. And so you have to scale up not just for this area, but for the inevitable needs that will come to you from other areas. And so when you talk about all those things and all that collaboration, you also know that we have to coordinate a lot because we may be focusing on this area of service or this type of service, and someone else may be focusing on something else. And within that, yes, consumers and clients have choice. And so what's vital is that there is never an unbroke, there is never a break in that continuum of coordinating, collaborating, embedding. It's all of the above. It's not an either or. Now, there's 10, 15, 20, you count the private practices, there's probably 50 different behavioral health agencies in Tulsa. And we are all businesses. And those businesses are all trying to put their best foot forward and to expand and to do the things they want to do and to be the best. But those things are not mutually exclusive to collaboration. There are examples all throughout every industry where uh, two companies that are technically, air quote, competing are also collaborating. So I don't see it as a mutually exclusive thing. I just see it as, as we're all scaling up and all putting our best foot forward, we also owe it to our clients and to our community to make sure we work well together. I I love that, Adam. I mean, that is, I, I couldn't agree more with that sort of vision. And I think that's, I sort of distill it down to where I come from. It's not original, obviously, but rising tides float all boats and that you can do that. And I hope that other partner collaborator, potential collaborators or current collaborators with family and children's services are listening and hearing that is that here is a leader new to the community, new to this uh, um, organization, new to this state, who is ready and willing to, A, but compete, but also to collaborate. And I totally agree. He's saying those two things are not mutually exclusive. They can work well together. And that's a real vision, Adam, from my perspective. And, and, and that's such a fantastic message that you're sending out there. And in so many ways, I think it aligns with the American philosophy, because the American philosophy has always been, you know, and you can talk about the different shades of capitalism. And some people say, well, you got to lift up the floor. And I believe that and make sure that no one's left behind. And I believe that. But America has always been premised on making sure that in open air, we all work for our best version of ourselves. But we do that knowing 
that it doesn't mean that someone automatically has to lose. It's not always a win or lose, but I think what we also have to recognize is sometimes people do lose. For example, Family and Children's Services and Tulsa Area United Way came into being in this area because the oil boom created some losers. Not everybody won. And because of those left behind and because of those who were, you know, maybe serving the industry or the industry shifted and they weren't needed anymore, that economy did not lift all boats. And that's why Family and Children's Services set up shop. And then a year or two later, so you're a little sibling, I guess, set up shop right there with us. And it was because we know that there are always risks that some people don't win. And when they don't, we have to lift them up too. And that's also the American way. And I, I'm just really, really proud of that, that history, that legacy, but also that partnership that goes back 99 years. So when I look at Tulsa Area United Way and the collaboration with Family and Children's Services, I see it as two nodes in a network. And this network has grown and grown and grown. And that is in so many ways due to the amazing work that United Way has always done in this area, because you've been the arm holding the other side of the table with so many partners at once. And when I look at the efforts in in Tulsa and the way all the partners have come together over time, I think we're closer than we realize to actually having some centralized network capacity. Now, in in times before networks on computers, the networks were the Roman road system. The networks were seeing how things interrelated and what the chain reaction was on a battlefield. So there's always been networks and how things interrelate. But I think that as we've seen now, this lovely picture of what happens with the internet and how networks interoperate, you're seeing a, a push right now. I'm going to geek out for a second, but you're seeing a push with... Instead of having Twitter over here and TikTok over here, you're starting to see this federation of this vision coming together where the federation is, is that, you know, the new Twitters, Mastodon, would work together with Threads, which is part of Meta, tied in with Facebook, and that all of these different products who are all putting their best foot forward are also interoperating in a network that speaks a common enough language that if you post to one, you can post to all, you can communicate to all. So what you see is sort of this next wave of the internet happening right now where all systems can interrelate. And I think that that is a lovely analogy and not just analogy, a reality of what is starting to form here in Tulsa is you can have a lot of different products, if you will, in this case, agencies, partners, as long as they are all coming together and ensuring compatibility of flow of people and flow of access and flow of needs. And I think that's where Tulsa Area United Way has been brilliant, not just in funding, but in putting as much effort and energy into funding the development of the network as to the individual agencies and nodes on that network. And I think that's the genius of it. And I think it's the right model. Yeah, Adam. I mean, I just, again, your vision, your macro vision is just really remarkable and really refreshing to bring that perspective in. I, You know, one of the things I want to just circle back to just to comment on about the, our COVID era, you know, it is so interesting that the COVID era has was such a difficult time, but as you referenced there, it did have some silver linings. It did have create some opportunities, particularly in the mental health service delivery. And I had the same experience that you described was that suddenly it really brought the stigma level down where everybody had, was experiencing anxiety. 
everybody was like more open than I had ever seen them to not just talk about those people needing help, but I need help. And and you guys addressing that, and you, you really described that really, really well. But I'd like you to take maybe a little bit of time, again, kind of bringing it down a little bit into some of the clinical thinking that you've got in terms of integration of physical health and mental health in substance abuse and where those three entities there sort of converge in terms of your philosophy and family and children's services philosophy around that integration of that care. Yeah, so the the terminology for the last 10 or 15 years has been social determinants of health. I think that term goes back longer. More recently, I've heard a lot of a push to say instead of social determinants, that's a little bit too hard of a word. So let's call social drivers of health or social drivers. But the concept is the same. And that is that if you can't keep a job because you're depressed, then that depression starts to drive your ability to stay in work. But by the same token, if you lose your job or don't have a job, you might be more depressed and then it starts to sort of go down that road. And so the ways in which one thing is connected to the other is so obvious now that not just us, but so many people nationwide are finally and rightfully starting to attend to the fact that you have to build out whole person care and whole person support. And that is quite frankly what attracted me to Family and Children's Services because it was a, for 75 years, it was the main focus was all those social drivers, even before they were called social drivers. And then 25 years ago, it adds on that mental health component. And of course, with that mental health component comes so many substance use services and so many other things like that. And what you have is a vision for family and children's services, but also for Tulsa and also for, again, every community that we have to attend to all things at once. And if you don't have access to a primary care physician, or if you don't have access to dental care, or if you don't have access to the clothes to dress up for a job interview, well, guess what? Your life's not going to get better and get on that trajectory. And then we're going to turn around as a society. And if it's like history, we'll look and say, well, you should have worked harder. Come on. We've got to give you the resources or help you get the resources and lift you up in those ways so that you can get some momentum. And I think that's something that is super, super important and something that, honestly, when I looked at Family and Children's, it's an extremely unique system in the way it started because most community mental health centers came into being in the 1960s where they were patching people up and working on them in crisis. Well, that's important, but that's not the original DNA of family and children's family and children's original DNA was all that other stuff. And then we brought mental health into that picture. I really like that. That's very good. You know, I'm going to kind of shift over a little bit to, of course, a lot of my history has been work trying to work in the homelessness area and trying to reduce and eliminate homelessness in this community. We've had mixed results to be completely honest about that. I, I think we've had successes. I think we've had failures, what have you. What what is the, your philosophy in family and children in terms of you know working and trying to do things in addressing the needs of our homeless population in our community and helping those individuals transition off of the streets into housing and getting the services wrapped around them that they need what have you take a little time and talk about your your philosophy and ideas around that Adam sure so I 
when you look at homelessness and, and assisting the unsheltered, one of the things that I see in every community is the dawn of some humility about the problem, if you will, because it's just not singly determined and it's not so easy as let's build more houses. We need more houses, no doubt. It's not so simple as, well, let's just give them mental health. In Missouri, uh, last year, they they outlawed homelessness. Well, how do you think that's going to work? C- congratulations, you outlawed homelessness. That'll fix it. And so I think that one of the challenges here is like there are so many factors that could go into this. And remember, there are some people who will even say they don't believe that we should be applying the judgment that being unsheltered is always a bad thing because there are some people who say, well, that's that's what I want. That's the lifestyle I want. And it's a very, very complex thing because does substance use tie into it? Yes, it does. Does economic indicators tie into it? Yes, it does. Does mental health and stability tie into it? Of course it does. Does how much a community wraps around and make sure there's jobs and opportunity and education? All of that is so involved that I do feel like most people, most people who are community organizers and most communities have have really over the last decade come to experience some humility about this. We have a lot of work to do, and that work is on all fronts, but we, we also need to continually better understand this and how homelessness or the unsheltered is a symptom of other things and, and that we have to wrestle with those other things too, because I do know there is a shortage of affordable housing in this community. Well, we can't talk about other solutions if we don't have affordable housing for people. So like, we've got to solve that. But if we have more affordable housing, have we solved homelessness? Of course not. And and so my philosophy on this really is to to join not only what we're learning now nationwide, but also to make sure that we are always open-minded. And I love that Tulsa has been an area. I had one foundation leader in town say, Tulsa has become known as the land of a thousand pilots, meaning every, every time somebody gets an idea, let's do another pilot. Well, I, I kind of like that to a point because no community anywhere I know of has solved this. So we should be still trying stuff. We should be still doing some trial and error. We should still be experimenting because until we find the right model that solves it, we've got to keep doing some pilots. But we've also got to not forget to do the basic blocking and tackling of if we don't have affordable housing, then don't talk to me about what we're going to do to solve homelessness. We have to get affordable housing as a core component of that. So I think it's a both end. Yeah, it's interesting you had mentioned about the pilots. I'm probably one of the uh, people that they were referring to. I I could never convince anybody to really fund something fully, so I'd have to sell it on, let's do a small pilot and demonstrate. And I'd say, you know, and not be afraid to experiment and try new things, what have you. We bring a lot of new ideas in the community that eventually got funded and grow, and some of them are still now tied to the United Way, tied to larger organizations. So, you know, send that person next time to me. I'd love to address that that issue with them. And I also get their 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 comment also. But uh, and, and to be clear, I don't think they were complaining. They were more observing because this is an area that rightfully will try to experiment and will fund those experiments. And some of them, to your point, take hold. And so I think it is a, of course, you want sustainability, but uh, a 300 batting average is still a pretty good batting average. Yeah, you know, again, as an advocate and my co-host that's not here today, Joy, we're big on lived experience, and we really believe that sometimes lived experience has been historically undervalued. We sort of tend to gravitate for good reason to, I call it letters after last names, 
and sometimes lived experience is a little bit devalued and needs to be upscaled somewhat in terms of how we think about the value of lived experience and its contribution to people getting better and, and better services. Here in Oklahoma, we have recovery support specialists, family and children's employees, recovery support specialists. What is your vision kind of going forward in the future in terms of um, employment, but integrating, elevating the whole aspect of harvesting and utilizing people's lived experiences and the value they bring from that. This is another area where I celebrate what is starting to happen in the field of mental health and substance use and recovery, because for so much of time, there's been sort of this vacillation between both extremes. Extreme one, and I'm going to use an an analogy that would be a pretty stark analogy, but if you are a victim of a gunshot wound, do you want the person who can... sit next to you and say, I know what that feels like, or do you want the person that says, I know how to remove it, and I've been trained to remove it? And so there's that ex- there's that extreme on both sides that, like, empathy takes you so far, but you also need the expert that says, hey, I know this, that, or the other. Well, what we've come to in so many areas of care now, and it's it's really this lovely thing to be seeing in a lot of the literature and a lot of the practice now, is... If you've lived this experience, whether that's substance use or mental health, there are absolutely things you understand that no expert can. And those things that you understand are those things that make it possible to get someone into care or make them willing to listen to you, to mentor them. And simultaneously, you need the experts who have been trained in, well, here's how the brain works, and here's how this all ties together, and here's what's going on, and here's what my air quote book knowledge tells me about this. But instead of it being an either or, I've seen some lovely models where if you put a a peer specialist and a therapist co-running a group, do you know how much richer that group is than if you had one or the other? Because you have people who can sit there and they sync up and they know and they get their dance going and, you know, the peer specialist says, here's what I've experienced, here's what I've lived. And then while that person's all listening, then the therapist says, and guess what? And here's what we know about the brain during that point in time. And here's what's going on. And so that sort of a dance is finally being welcomed. And Oklahoma has really, in community mental health and a substance use and recovery, has really funded a lot of peers. And that is a welcome thing. And it's a thing that I am also happy that it's less of an either or where it used to be either listen to your peer or go to the experts, but the experts don't know anything or the peers don't know anything. It's always been that back and forth in the past. I feel like everybody's kind of coming to the middle and recognizing now that you can really go arm in arm on this and help people in both ways. That's beautiful. I Just a shout out to my co-host, Joy, who couldn't be with us today, but she's I know she brought in the, this concept coming out of Europe out of the UK, called co-production, and you you really reference that in terms of the clinician, the lived experience person, and and the quality that could be bring. For example, you use example of a group and how you get the best of both worlds out of that. And of course, that's a part of the some of the tenets of, of co-production. As Joy has edu- helped educate me about that, you know, man, I mean, I, I think the future of family and children's services is in pretty good hands. Appreciate those kind words, and I love to be here. But I think what has made it so special is the fact that 
you know, between Gail's legacy and this community and this organization and our board of directors, I've been able to come into a championship team and the coach can look really good when you inherit players like this. And so this is a, an amazing organization, really special, and I look forward to all we're going to do. But I also know that there's not a single thing we can do uh, if we don't look back at what brought us to this point. And, and so Gail and the board and this community and the way we've wrapped around each other, it's just a really, really special thing. Again, I appreciate everybody's interest. I know we've, we've talked a lot about policy and structure and vision. And the biggest thing I want to note to a community is we're here to scale up. Others are here to scale up. We're here to do more. But there is also always that inevitable that the second you become available in a bigger way, more need also appears. And I really think we're at this point in time in which as a community, every single time we get some momentum in an area, it's going to shine a light on more need. And at some point, maybe we get that saturation point where we're keeping up, but there is a lot of work we have to do as a community. And we're here to partner, we're here to scale up, but no one is going to be perfect. No one expects that, but it also is a thing that as a community, if your loved one has struggles or challenges getting into care, you could lose hope in or confidence in the whole system. And I would really want to shine a note on number one, we want to make sure that never happens. And number two, if it does, we are still working hard. We are still relentlessly as a community, not just family and children's to scale up to be all that the community needs. But it's gonna take a minute. This funding just arrived in Tulsa in 2021. So there is, a, as fast as you hire and as fast as you open clinics and as fast as you get the word out, we're about two or three years in on this. And so there's a lot of good yet to come. All right, well, it's, it's been an honor getting to talk to you. As we do at the end of every Tulsa Area United Way Live United podcast, I ask the guests why they live united. But before you answer, I want to give a huge shout out to D. Harris, who has uh, been one of my great friends and mentors. Uh, she helped arrange all of this. Thank you, D. Also want to give a huge, huge shout out to Gail Lapidus. My goodness, everything you contributed, you're a legend. And in her retirement, she's actually serving on the Tulsa United Way's Centennial Committee and helping guide our celebration this year. And so if you can, we've got lots planned. Our, our birthday's April 1st got Ignite Week. That'll be a whole week of celebrations. Until then, if you'll visit centennial.tauw.org and stay tuned for all of that. So with all that being said, Adam, why do you live United? One of the things that I love as I'm getting to know Tulsa Area United Way and the United Way in general, because I didn't get to work a lot with United Way in Missouri uh, when I was there, is how much to live united is an amazing tagline for what should be all of our philosophy. And that is that uh, we only exist together. We are at the core. We are just developed to be in relationship and in community. We are herd animals. We are here to be as one. And I just love that to live united sort of says very beautifully what I'm taking too long to say. And that is you got to do it together.